the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. A second way we show love to the brethren is by loving prisoners through compassion. And I would expand this to say not only prisoners, but those who are mistreated, who are suffering, because the writer says that. Verse 3, he starts off by saying, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Let's just stop here. First of all, he says, remember the prisoners. Some of the people in this Hebrew church were sent to prison for their faith. We looked at this when we studied chapter 10, and we have gone back many times, so I won't have you turn there, but chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, it says some of them were put in prison. In the early days of their Christian experience, they did show compassion to those who were arrested. Some really did go in the prison and minister to them and show genuine concern. And now the writer is urging them, don't forget those who are in prison. You are to remember them. Why is it so important to remember those in prison? tuned to Verse by Verse Radio, a program that teaches the Word of God in a verse-by-verse fashion. Our teacher is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. His name is Steve Kreloff. He's been doing an excellent job of teaching us about brotherly love, taken from Hebrews 13. We have more to learn about that today, such as, we are to love prisoners. Hmm. Pastor Steve is going to explain that to us. Basically, the writer of Hebrews is calling on the readers to show compassion to those who are in need, whether they are in prison or not. Pastor Steve is going to give us some very practical ways that we can show love to hurting people. So, let us jump into today's verse-by-verse program. Well, we really don't usually have, like in the ancient church, we don't usually have people traveling around like they did who don't stay in hotels. And you do have some people traveling around. But a more practical, concrete way is to have strangers to your home, people who go to this church, brethren who go to this church who you don't know, invite them over. Invite someone new. Invite someone who you want to get to know, someone who needs to be reached out to. And I will say this to those who have been reached out to because there have been many at Lakeside in the last few weeks who have been reached out to and will be reached out to. Once that happens to you, you got to do it to others. you got to reach out to others. It's not like you're on the list for a year. When that happens to you, you have a responsibility. If you're a believer, you have to reach out to others too. So everybody does this. No one is exempt. This isn't just for elders. This is for everybody. So how do we show love to the brethren? By loving strangers through hospitality. Say, but they're strangers. That's the point. They're strangers, so get to know them a little better. A second way we show love to the brethren is by loving prisoners through compassion. And I would expand this to say not only prisoners, but those who are mistreated, who are suffering, because the writer says that. Verse 3, he starts off by saying, Remember the prisoners 
as though in prison with them. Let's just stop here. First of all, he says, remember the prisoners. Some of the people in this Hebrew church were sent to prison for their faith. We looked at this when we studied chapter 10, and we have gone back many times, so I won't have you turn there, but chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, it says some of them were put in prison. In the early days of their Christian experience, they did show compassion to those who were arrested. Some really did go in the prison and minister to them and show genuine concern. And now the writer is urging them, don't forget those who are in prison. You are to remember them. Why is it so important to remember those in prison? Because in ancient times, prisoners depended on their family and relatives and friends to minister to their needs. A family member or friend could get into the prison and they would be the ones ministering to them. How would they minister? They'd bring food and clothing and other necessities. And if they didn't do that, that person was neglected. The state didn't care for them. The state didn't give them three meals a day. If your friends neglected you and your family neglected you, you were in big trouble. In fact, we have some insight on this with Paul's prison experience in 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is Paul's last letter. He's about to die. And he says in 2 Timothy 1.16, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Probably came in and bathed Paul and gave him some food or whatever. Maybe brought him some cologne. I don't know. Some soap or something. He refreshed him. He ministered to him. Also, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 13, he writes, Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus. Bring my coat. It's cold here. Bring my coat. And the books, especially the parchments. So bring the reading material, bring my coat. You see, that's the flavor. That's the point. And that's why these people were not to neglect those who had been in prison. Now, the writer is calling for us to show compassion to those who are suffering, whether they be in prison or out of prison suffering. And the way we should do this is to put ourselves in their place and imagine what life would be like if you were there. That's why we read. We go on in verse 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. He's not saying that we have to starve in order to be sympathetic to those who are starving. He's just saying, imagine if you were in prison, how would you like to be treated? How would you like to be remembered? Well, if I was in prison, I'd want people to visit me. I want people to bring me food, books, magazines, letters. You see, it's the golden rule. It's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you would want people to do for you, you do for them, because the law and the prophets hang on this. It's called love. The last phrase of verse 3 says, since you yourselves also are in the body, does not refer to the body of Christ. I think what the writer is saying here is that we are all in a physical body, and therefore we know what it feels like to suffer. We know what it feels like to endure pain. In other words, our own suffering should make us sensitive to the sufferings of others. You're in a body too. You know what it's like. You don't have to be in prison or suffering to understand what that is. You're not out of this body. You see, this is one of the reasons why we go through pain, why God lets pain in our lives and sometimes sends pain into our lives in order for us to be sensitive to the pain of others. That's compassion. You feel for others because you've gone through it. You know what it's like. Before we leave the subject of loving prisoners and sufferers in general, I want us to realize the depths of the love that the early church demonstrated to prisoners because we are to do Nothing less than this. There was a pagan orator by the name of Aristotes who wrote this, a pagan man, not a Christian, explaining how Christians minister to those who are in prison. 
He wrote this, If they hear that any one of their number is in prison or in distress for the sake of their Christ's name, they all render aid in his necessity, and if they can, they redeem him to set him free. What he's saying is they do whatever they can while he's in prison, and they actually, if they can, they raise money to pay for him to be released. And I have discovered through my reading that some early Christians actually sold themselves into slavery to get money to set their fellow Christians free from prison. That's just amazing. But that's the kind of depth that we're to have. That's the kind of love that we're to have. And I wonder if we've lost that kind of love. I wonder if we've lost that kind of sensitivity to those in need. In a church like ours, and there are many people busy serving all kinds of ministries, I just caution us to be careful that we don't get so busy with board meetings and committee meetings and things that we have to get done that we fail to notice people who are suffering. It's easy to do. You can get so wrapped up in non-personal items, the building and the finances. And I know those things have to be dealt with. I realize that. But I just get very concerned that maybe in the midst of doing that, we get preoccupied with that other stuff and we neglect and overlook those who are hurting and have needs. And that's the priority. There's a balance. How can we love hurting people? Let me give you some very practical suggestions. Number one, just be there. Just be there to those who are hurting. Listen to them. And don't feel compelled that you've got to give them a sermon. Job's friends, the greatest way they could have ministered to Job is just sit there and listen and just watch him and don't take their eyes off of him and let him pour out his heart. That's how they would have encouraged him. Instead, they tried to analyze why he was going through pain and they didn't have a clue as to why he was going through pain. Secondly, Another suggestion, give what they need if you can. If you have the resources, give it. It may be a meal. It may just be bringing over a meal to somebody who's been very sick and they can't make a meal for their family. Be sensitive to that. It may mean giving some money. If you don't want them to know who gave it, then get a cashier's check. I mean, there are ways to do this. It may mean just getting groceries for them or it may mean clothing. There's a number of things that you can do. And not everybody has the resources to do that. It may be that you can, that you have to take care of your own family and you just don't have any more to help. So what do you do then? Well, then you pray. And what I was saying before is don't just pray if you have the resources, but sometimes that's all we can give. In Colossians 4.18, Paul said to the Colossians, he said, remember my imprisonment. And what he was saying is, I know that you can't do anything but that, so that means so much to me. It means pray. That's what he meant, pray. So we show love to the brethren by, number one, loving strangers through hospitality. You're going to do that? If you're not, you're disobedient. Number two, by loving prisoners through compassion and for all people who suffer who are believers. If you don't do that, you're disobedient. And the third way we show love to the brethren is by loving our marriage partner through sexual purity. Verse four, let marriage, he writes, be held in honor among all. You know, it's one thing to love strangers and prisoners, but we're also to be loving to our spouse, our marriage partners. And that's where this fits. There are some Christians who just are always reaching out to others and always ministering and kind of neglect their family, especially their spouse. And the first step in being a loving husband or wife is to realize that marriage is honorable. What a great statement. Marriage is honorable. God created it. He honors it. And he tells us that we are to hold it in honor. You know, that's being challenged today. That's why it's very important for us to realize this. Marriage is being attacked from all different angles. It's being challenged as more and more people are questioning the need to get married. Some say it's so outdated. It's from our evolutionary past. 
It's so old-fashioned. Well, it's just a piece of paper. What does that mean? Or if they do get married, people will see it as a temporary setup. If you find somebody who looks better or makes more money or makes you feel better, then you just get out of this marriage and get into some other marriage. And so marriage is really being questioned today. It's really being challenged. I want you to understand something. Verse 4, it may look like this, especially in the King James Version. It looks like it is a statement of fact that marriage is honorable. And that's a true statement. Marriage is honorable, but I don't think that's the writer's point here. It's not really a statement of fact because all the other verses are commands. Commands about hospitality, commands about strangers. This is a command too. It's not a statement of fact. Also, the verb is is not in the original Greek. That was added by those who translated it. It's not. In other words, what he is saying is he's calling for couples to honor their marriages. Let marriage be held in honor. It is honorable. Yes, that's true. But let marriage be held in honor. In other words, treat your marriage as an honorable thing. And how do we do that? Well, one way to do this is found in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. One way we honor our marriage and the whole institution of marriage is by not defiling the marriage bed. And what does that mean? It means that we are to remain sexually pure and have sexual relations only with our marriage partner. The term marriage bed is a euphemism, and it simply is referring to sexual relations. And, of course, in this context, it means within the confines of marriage. Nothing is to defile that. Nothing. Sexual purity is the way to love our marriage partner. At least it's one way he's saying we're not to be unfaithful or cheat on them. And that's the point. You love your spouse, so you're not unfaithful to your spouse. It is an area in which a husband and a wife minister and lovingly serve one another. Sexual relations are not dirty, not wrong. It's only wrong when it's outside the limits of marriage. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And people often don't talk about this, and they kind of squirm about this. They feel embarrassed, and we're not, we're not going to go into any details. The Bible doesn't call us to do that, but it does address this area of life, very important area of life. And we need to see what the Scripture says. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And what Paul is saying, they asked him, what about staying single? What about being celibate? And Paul said, that's good. And the overall context in chapter 7 is, if God has given you the gift of celibacy, that's good. If you can handle it, that's fine. He's not saying being single is more virtuous than being married, or vice versa. It's just fine, if you can handle it. That's why he says in verse 2, but because of immoralities, which means that some cannot handle it, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. If a man wants to stay single, that's fine, or a woman, but if he or she finds that they can't handle a life of celibacy, they should get married. That's what he's saying. There's nothing more spiritual about being celibate and you can't handle it. In fact, there's nothing more spiritual about being celibate and you can handle it. But, now he goes on to say, so you get married. Verse 3, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. So talking about the area of sexual relations. It's a responsibility. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So when you get married, 
You stop having authority solely over your own body. Your bodies are to serve and minister in a loving way to your spouse. Verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement. You mean sexually depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. That means that they have to agree on this. There may be some overburdening thing that's come into their life and they feel like, hey, we really need to give ourselves to prayer because it says that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then he says, and to come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So you don't say for the next two years, we're not going to have relations as we pray over this matter. You don't do that. It's a temporary time if something perhaps an illness in the family or some real burden. He said, and listen, don't stay apart too long because then Satan's going to tempt you in your area of self-control. So when you get married, you have a responsibility to meet the sexual needs of your spouse. And keep this in mind, it isn't that you look for sexual fulfillment. That's not the point. But that you are to love your spouse by looking to meet his or her needs. You see, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of saying, I want to give, not take. I want to be selfless, not selfish. And men, are you listening? Are you listening? Because that's an area that men have a real problem with. I think that the wife exists to meet their needs. It's not what the Bible teaches. When you both have the attitude of serving each other, then your pleasure will be maximized. Yes, you will enjoy it, but your attitude needs to be giving, not taking. Very practical. God holds sexual purity as a serious matter, and the world of unsaved men and women consider loose living as normal. God says it's serious. Our world that we live in, that's coming at us so fast, has just the opposite message. They say there's this term casual sex, whatever that may mean. And unfortunately, we know what that means. But casual sex, that's normal. If it feels good, do it. And television teaches that sex outside of marriage is fun. And you know what? They never show or rarely do they show the consequences of that sin, of that behavior. But God says something else about the violation of this marriage act. The end of verse 4. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Judgment awaits those who are sexually impure, regardless of what Hollywood portrays in television and the movies. And that means any sex outside of marriage. God says he'll judge. Now, what does this mean? I take it in two ways. It means that those who practice immorality as a lifestyle are not believers. They are not believers, and God will judge them as unbelievers. In fact, how do I know that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? He's saying those who have never trusted Christ, they are unrighteous in their behavior too. They demonstrate that they've never trusted the Lord. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 11, and this is the great hope, and such were some of you. That church was made up of people who were formerly like that. But he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That's what a church is. It's made up of people who used to behave that way. But now they don't. Why? Because they've been changed by Jesus Christ. They don't live that way anymore. I believe that he's talking about eternal judgment. But I think there's also a sense in which God punishes those who are sexually impure even before there's eternal judgment. Or if someone's a believer and violates this. Now how? You don't have to be a brilliant theologian to figure this one out. How does God punish our society and even believers if they violate the purity of marriage and sexual purity? Well, there's feelings of guilt. 
extramarital pregnancies, illegitimate births, venereal disease, AIDS, it's all part of this, the heartache of separation and divorce, the lack of love within homes, and even murder because of jealousy. And we could go on and on, but there are consequences for sin. I mean, Hollywood, don't believe what they say. They just move from partner to partner and life is wonderful. It is not. There are tremendous heartache and problems that go along with this. So how do we maintain sexual purity? Let me point you to one important passage of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Since this is a problem area, let's look at this for a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, means your holiness. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's will. I had someone say to me one time, where in the Bible does it say that we are to not have relations outside of marriage? Right here, and other places too, but right here. So this is God's will. You want to know what God's will is? Here it is. Verse 4, and this is a key, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Hey, we're different. We do know the Lord. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects us is not rejecting men, but God who gave his Holy Spirit to you. God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us in this area. But I think the key is found in verse 4. It speaks of controlling our bodies and desires. How do we do that? Don't let your body control you, but discipline your body by disciplining your mind. It all begins in the mind. Jesus said what a man thinks in his heart or in his mind, that's what he is. Be careful about what you take into your mind, what you watch on television, what you read in magazines, even the books that you read. Listen, this is the great danger of what we take in. What you take in, you will become like. That's in there, and you dwell on that stuff. What you see is what you think about, what you dwell on. Jesus said, guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. Be careful. And once that thought is there, it's there forever. And it just makes it that much more difficult and challenging for you not to think about that. One final verse, Ephesians chapter 5. I think this is so important. Ephesians 5, verse 12. The apostle writes, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. It's disgraceful. Be careful about what you even talk about. Even if you're condemning that behavior, be careful about how you do it because you have to think it through to talk about it in detail. So be careful about that stuff. What are you watching? What are they talking about what you're watching? What is the message that they're conveying to you? Be careful about that. Control your mind and you'll control your body. Don't let your body control you. Don't just do whatever you feel like doing. You are in charge. Your mind is in charge, not your body. How do we love the brethren? Number one, by opening our homes to strangers who are believers. Are you going to do that? This week, are you going to put that into practice? Are you going to go home and sit down and look at your calendar and say, now, I have this date open. I'd like to have so-and-so come over. Are you going to do that? That's what you ought to do. Secondly, by deeds of compassion to those who suffer. Are you going to look around this church and maybe others you know and say, you know, here's a Christian who's hurting. Maybe he or she can't find a job. Maybe they're a poor college student. I could help them. I could really help them. And then do something. How about sexual purity with your marriage partner? Have you been looking at your spouse as just fulfilling your needs rather than you loving them enough to serve them? That's what the Bible calls us to do. 
What if you've been unfaithful to them? What if you've been cheating on them? And you not only get before God this afternoon and confess that as sin. In fact, you get before him now and you repent and you go and you ask your spouse to forgive you for violating and defiling the marriage bed. If you don't do that, God's going to deal with you in discipline. He may have to do that through this church because if we find out about it, we'll be the instruments that God uses to discipline. So the Bible is very clear about this. What if you're not a believer? What if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Well, then you're outside of the family. This is for family. You can become part of that family by turning from your sins and trusting Christ and Him alone. Jesus died for our sins to make us new people, to change us, to put love in our hearts. And if you're feeling left out that you're not part of the family, you can become part of the family by coming to Him. Thank you for joining us today on our verse-by-verse program. We are now three sessions into our series, Biblical Instructions for Godly Living. I'd have to say that our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, has given us a lot to think about, as he usually does. For example, when it comes to the topic of brotherly love, have you ever heard of sexual purity as being part of that? I appreciate the depth to which Pastor Steve has been teaching us. He has also given us some very practical ways to implement brotherly love in our lives. We will be back again next time as we continue with this series on godly living. So I hope you're planning to join us and please encourage a friend to tune in as well. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.